Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Every company has its foundational myth. Usually carved out of air by its founder, it becomes the basis of its culture, its marketing, and its fundraising. Often the reality of running a business, though, is much more mundane, often separated from the myth. Do no evil, change the world, reinvent transportation. All are a far cry from writing algorithms, providing customer service, or delivering lukewarm food. Most people, even charismatic founders of companies, can understand the difference. It's like what used to be said of political campaigns that candidates campaigned in poetry and governed in prose. Sometimes, though, when the myth becomes the reality, trouble is not far behind. Donald Trump, Travis Kalanick, Elizabeth Holmes are some clear examples. But perhaps the granddaddy of them all is Adam Newman and WeWork. Rarely has the foundational myth and the company's operations become so interconnected as it was with WeWork. As a result, that short circuit takes the company crashing to the ground. It's the stuff of movies, of high drama. Even for essentially what was a dull real estate company, it's the Silicon Valley fable. An outsider enters, disrupts a space dominated by legacy players. Everyone doubts him or her, and he or she leverages changing technology, communication tools, and refuses to play by established rules and wins against all odds. However, as we've seen, when the myth and the reality become so interconnected, it's hard to tell the difference. There's the inevitable crash, as there was for Adam Newman and WeWork. We're going to talk about that today with my guest, Reeves Weideman. Reeves Weideman is a contributing editor at New York Magazine. He's written for The New Yorker, The New York Times, Rolling Stone, and Harper's. And it is my pleasure to welcome Reeves Weideman here to talk about his book, Billion Dollar Loser, The Epic Rise and Spectacular Fall of Adam Newman and WeWork. Reeves, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Jeff. Well, it's great to have you here. The foundational idea of WeWork was really pretty simple, it seems, at its core. It was the idea of subleasing office space, co-working space at a time when there was a need for flexibility coming out of the 2008-2009 financial crisis. Talk about that first. Yeah, the the initial idea for WeWork and, and what it provided to customers early on was something that people really wanted. This was the wake of the financial crisis. New York City, where where WeWork was founded, was had been kind of decimated. The whole industries were sort of upturned, and and companies were were collapsing, and and people were looking for something different, and and especially from their sort of work lives. And and what WeWork offered was, come to our space. We're we're going to make it look cool. Uh, we're going to have free coffee and free beer, and we're going to host happy hours, and we're going to create a community um, in in your office. And and that was for, you know, whether you're someone who's starting your own company, you're a freelancer, maybe you don't want to work at a, at a big corporation anymore after kind of having seen what happened in the financial crisis. And early on, it was, it was a really appealing place to work. And it was, it was the cool place to be uh, for a lot of people. The idea of co-working spaces had been around for a long time. There were other companies, one yeah. in particular, that had done this this element, though, of community, of taking yeah. the, the tech aspect of it and adding it to real estate, and, and that really goes back, I mean, in terms of Adam Newman's evolution of it, it goes back to his youth, if, if one looks for the origins of this. Sure, yeah. So, so Adam Newman uh, grew up in Israel, and he spent several years on a kibbutz, which is sort of a, a kind of socialist, utopian um, 
community in in uh, in Israel where you know everyone uh, sort of manages uh, the, everyone gets paid the same amount of, of money no matter what what job you do and everyone kind of tries to take care of each other at least that's that's how it, it works in in a kind of utopic version of that and and Adam and his co-founder Miguel McKelvey who who grew up on in sort of this communal living situation in Oregon sort of came together. And and as they talked about the origins of WeWork, that sort of ethos is is what they said they were they were trying to push that they they felt like this was a moment when our our physical connections to people were being um, you know torn apart in in various ways and and they wanted to try to rebuild some of that and and to give people these office spaces that that sort of built connection and and built community and and I think especially early on. It was something that differentiated WeWork. There, as as you alluded to, there there were other companies who provided office spaces, flexible office spaces with with some of the same amenities that WeWork did, but they were kind of boring spaces. They were they were just sort of practical spaces. And and Adam, uh, especially as he talked about the company, talked about it as a community company, not a real estate company. And he eventually also talked about it as a tech company. Uh, the the phrase that he sort of used was that we're creating a physical social network, which was a way of sort of tying WeWork to the rise of Facebook and Twitter and all these other places, but but somehow sort of transforming it into something that was actually physical. And that was the pitch of WeWork. And then what what WeWork sort of tried and, and ultimately struggled to deliver on was, was actually delivering on that promise. And And to a certain extent, it was an idea of trying to really scale up what had been a business that was hard to scale previously. Yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, real estate is expensive. You know, the the, the reason all these tech companies can, can grow so quickly and, and become so large and eventually make tons and tons of money is is that it becomes easier to add people um, the, the bigger and bigger you get. And that, in fact, the more people you add, the more beneficial your your company is to all of, all of the users, at least in theory. Um, with, with WeWork, with a real estate company, each time you add a new office, which in Adam's conception was a new node in, in the physical social network, you still have to take out a lease. You still have to build the space. You still have to operate it. And, and while you can get a little more efficient at, at doing that each, each time you do it, it's still going to cost roughly the same. And so this, this notion that WeWork was going to somehow create this, this sort of self-perpetuating network, um, which is never really going to be possible. Um, but people wanted to believe that, that it could. They wanted to believe that, that Adam and WeWork were, were going to figure out some way to sort of change the economics of, of the real estate model from, or the real estate business from, from one that was kind of a, a very expensive model to one that could be more streamlined. Why was there such a desire to believe that? How much of it came from the idea that the real estate industry was was ripe for creative destruction? And how much really came from the charismatic nature of Adam Newman? I think it was a little of both. And, and, and the other thing that it's sort of wrapped up in is is just the sort of ethos of, of uh, Silicon Valley and, and the venture capital world. And Adam was a great salesman. There's, there's no doubt about that. And, but, but what he was able to sort of tap into was a desire and a belief from investors, especially over the past decade, and increasingly so as we got further and further away from the financial crisis, to find these companies that were going to completely disrupt various industries, that were going to 
change the the taxi industry the way that that Uber was the transportation industry as Uber claimed that it that it would that uh, the Airbnbs the Facebooks these other companies that were becoming these giant unicorns and and completely changing the industries that they were in Adam was sort of the first person to really come in and say we can do that for commercial real estate and and we're going to do that and so the pitch was was compelling to to venture capitalists who were looking to sort of fund these kinds of companies that could potentially, if you could pull off what you're promising, become this, this huge company. Um, and then Adam was sort of the perfect salesman and, and this kind of visionary leader who was able to convince these investors that, that even though logic didn't necessarily uh, suggest that this would be possible, that, that maybe he was the guy who could pull it off. As you looked at this whole story, through the rearview mirror and, and, and really dissecting it as you did after the crash, almost as if it was, was, you know, a Harvard Business School case study in some respects. What do you see as, as the fatal flaw early on in the whole idea? I think there were a few things, and there's a couple sort of pivot points that, at, in the WeWork story that, that all of which come back to some of the same problems, which is that, as, as we started talking about at the beginning, the, the idea was a good one. And, and this was not a, a Theranos situation where, where the blood testing machine never really worked. These, these offices were nice and, and people liked them and, and they were, WeWork was bringing in money. And there was a point early on when the company was, was even profitable. What happened, I, I think, is two things. And, and they're all sort of wrapped up in, in the hyper ambition that, that Adam Newman had and that the investors who, who pushed him were, were, were pushing him to have. And that was to grow as fast as you possibly can. And, and there are so many companies that we can point to, and some of which I've covered over the past half decade, that, that many of the problems that emerge for them uh, come from the fact that they just have this impulse to grow and grow and grow as, as quickly as possible. And then in, in WeWork's case, it was also an impulse to grow in many different directions. Uh, a, a few years after WeWork started, they, they began pursuing uh, an apartment situation where they would give people these tiny apartments and then big communal common spaces. Uh, they eventually opened an elementary school. They started a gym. Uh, Adam invested in a wave pool company for, for inland surfing. So there were all these things that WeWork was trying to do on this idea that our, our ambition was to be more than just a real estate company, more than just an office operator. And I think that when you look back at the company, all of that sort of distracted it from the thing that, that they were actually good at doing. And one of the things that we hear over and over again with respect to startups, that that in order for them to grow as fast as they need to grow, that there needs to be this this massive amount of focus on one particular area of the business. We work in many respects was exactly the opposite of that. Yeah, I think that's that's right. And there there were many people I talked to who wished that the company had had simply focused on its office business and had had not done all of these other things. And I, I think there is, you know, this this does go back to, to to mention Uber again. You know, Uber is is by by many accounts and in many ways a vast improvement over what existed when it comes to taxi service in various cities. But Uber's ambition was to, and, and became, to change the way people and things move around the world. That's a much bigger ambition, and it's, it's not totally clear that Uber is, is the one to do that. Uh, WeWork's mission went from make a life, not a living, which was very something everyone could kind of wrap their head around and something everyone wanted, to eventually in 2019 having a mission statement of elevating the world's consciousness, 
which became a thing so beyond what anyone could even conceive of, of, of what that was or what that practically meant. And it just totally distracted the company and, and I think even confused people within the company about what they were actually doing. One of the things, though, that's so unique, I mean, the other side of that point is that pulling this concept off, this idea of subleasing office space and, and, and overlaying it with this idea of community and social network was something that perhaps only Adam Newman could have pulled off. I think that's right. I mean, there, you know, there were, on the one hand, there were plenty of other WeWork competitors who I think just just didn't have the, the impulse toward growing as, as big and as, as fast and, and as widely as, as Adam did. There, there are many other competitors in this industry who have nicely profitable businesses with, with half a dozen or maybe a couple dozen spaces. But, but Adam both had the desire to build a company like this to, to continue to grow um, and he had the ability to convince investors that he was the one capable of doing it. Uh, a, a venture capitalist is not going to give uh, hundreds of millions of dollars and, and eventually billions of dollars, as, as we work out from investors, to someone who kind of says to them, you know, I'm going to build a nice little business. They, they believed in Adam uh, b- because he was a little bit crazy, because he was the, willing to, to claim that WeWork was going to, to do the impossible. And so... That's what, what in many ways, uh, attracted people to him. How much of, of a reality distortion field did Adam Newman live in? A pretty significant one. I mean, you know, and, and it's, it's hard to, to sort of, you know, he, he was a pretty normal guy. You know, he'd, he'd had a few, ent- few um, companies that he started before WeWork, none of which were, were all that successful. And, and then suddenly he, he became this, this huge big deal that was on the, the cover of magazines and, and on TV shows and all of these things. He became sort of the, the sort of celebrity um, entrepreneur that, that he had, had hoped to become and that, and that many sort of young entrepreneurs were, were aspiring to be over, over the past decade. So I think, you know, that, that's the way that, that employees certainly talk about him and investors is that he, he was just kind of a person who, in, in the same way that, that Steve Jobs or, or other people who've, who lived in their own reality distortion fields are, are capable of, of, of convincing you that the impossible was, was possible. And it's, it is a tricky line where, where you know, we, we want to encourage people to, to push beyond um, what's, what's sort of commonly deemed to be acceptable or, or, or possible or doable, but it, it, it's, it, it is just sort of a, a, a thin line between that and sort of this uh, ambition that, that ends up driving you off a cliff. Talk a little bit about Adam Newman's wife, Rebecca, and her involvement in the company and, and her involvement in terms of, of the influence she had on, on Adam and the influence she had within the company. Yeah, she's she's sort of a crucial and a little bit vexing figure in, in the WeWork story. Um, Rebecca's First cousin is Gwyneth Paltrow, the actress, uh, which is, is significant in, in a couple of ways. One uh, of which is that early on, when when Adam was just kind of a struggling entrepreneur, and and he and Rebecca got married shortly before he started WeWork, a lot of the early investment came from just kind of the friends and family that that Adam was now a part of in in kind of the the sort of moneyed class of, of New Yorkers that that uh, Rebecca his wife was just naturally a part of and that that Adam had kind of aspired to to work his way into so she was crucial in in that respect early on in in helping frankly just just get WeWork 
money to, to get the business off the ground. She was not an early um, employee in the, in the sense of being in there day to day. There was a sort of transition kind of in uh, four or five years uh, in, into the company's life when, when she started to become more of a presence uh, when the company itself uh, started to talk about her as, as a founding partner, which, which sort of confused a lot of uh, the early uh, employees who didn't remember her there. Um, but she, she did, uh, the thing that she sort of took on was, was the branding of the company. And, and their branding was a big part of the WeWork story. They branded this idea that, that we are, are building office space that is more than office space, that is, is something elevated. And, and she was a part of that uh, on, on the way up. And then on the way down, uh, in, in these sort of six weeks uh, of, of WeWork's uh, terrible attempt at an IPO in, in the fall of 2019, she was responsible for what's uh, for part of what's what's called an S1. It's this document that that any company files before they go public. And and Rebecca took on this task of sort of beautifying the S1. This is a document that's traditionally charts and graphs and numbers and a lot of footnotes and small text. WeWorks, um, partly prompted by Rebecca, as, as she said, needed needed to tell the story of we. And so there were all these photos and there were kind of these mottos and taglines that were very flowery. And, you know, on the one hand, it, it just kind of became this, this big distraction for the process as WeWork was going. And then eventually once the document was released to the public and it had all these things that, that seemed to have little to do with, with renting office space, it became uh, one of the big reasons that, that the company came in for such mockery. Rarely has there been an example, and this, this really goes to one of the things that, that arguably led to the crash, is the way in which branding and economics became conflated. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the core of, of much of WeWork's sales pitch was branding. It, it, was, it was not necessarily that, you know, WeWork was, was more expensive than a lot of other office spaces. This was not the case of a, of a company, sort of a tech company making things cheaper by, by the way that they're operating. In fact, WeWork was often more expensive than other offices. What they did was, was brand the space um, to create a sort of lifestyle brand for um, for offices, and and it, it it worked for a long time, and 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 I think, you know, what what became uh, I think a problem for the company was when the branding uh, was, was became separated from what they actually did. Again, when they were talking about just kind of making a life not a not a living or b- building a better day at work, like those were things that that people could could wrap their heads around. And then once you start talking about elevating the world's consciousness. That just has very little to do with with the way that you actually make money, and so so the branding was both sort of crucial to 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 how the company made money, and then I think once the branding went off the rails, that was became a big problem for for people trying to even understand what they did. Beyond Adam and Rebecca Newman, in, in many ways, the third character, the third most important character in this story, seems to be Masayoshi San and Japan's SoftBank yep. Investment Fund. Talk about the yep. importance of that. Sure. I mean, this is perhaps the most crucial moment in, in WeWork's history. Um, in, in 2017, um, actually stepping back to 2016, uh, Masayoshi San, the founder of of SoftBank um, met with Adam Newman and, and Masa was is sort of this hugely famous um, person in, in business and, and technology. Uh, and, and he has placed a number of, he, he sort of has a reputation for placing these audacious bets. He, he has made a very early bet on 
uh, Yahoo in, in Japan. He, he made an early bet on Alibaba, which is essentially the, the Chinese Amazon that, that is perhaps the best venture capital investment of all time. So he's this person who's known for making bold bets. And, and when he and Adam met at WeWork headquarters in 2016, in this famous meeting that, that lasted less than half an hour, uh, Masa uh, agreed to invest $4 billion uh, in, into WeWork, which was was more than than almost any other uh, venture capital investment ever, in order to encourage him to to expand all over the world even faster, to to be crazier uh, is is a quote that that um, Masa had told Adam uh, on on several occasions, um, and and this was a real pivot point for WeWork. They were the company was at a point where they were going to run out of money potentially um, and and going to have to go public and maybe have to become a sort of more stable business. And instead, suddenly they came into more money than, than anyone had ever had. And so all of Adam's ambitions, some of which were being checked at that point, were now open. And it, it was possible for them to, to at least attempt the impossible. And so with, without that investment, uh, I, I think certainly many WeWork employees feel like things may have even worked out better uh, for the company. Had it, had WeWork done an IPO at that point, it, it arguably would have forced it to become a more responsible company earlier on. Yeah, exactly. And that, that I think, you know, there, there wouldn't have been an elementary school. There wouldn't have been kind of all these other things that the, the company sort of expanded it into uh, once it had, had the money to do so. And, and instead, it would have been forced to just kind of focus on making this office space business that they had as, as good as, as they possibly could have. And I, I think I, I certainly, uh, you know, it's, it's a bit of a catch 22 because no one would, would uh, be bold enough to say I would have turned down the $4 billion that, that Masa was offering. On the other hand, um, certainly many people wish that, that Adam had done that. Why didn't Masa have a better understanding of what would happen? I think, you know, there there was a kind of um, collective delusion, I think, among many investors um, that that you could pour money into industries and that that was all it would take to sort of warp the economics of, of whatever industry you're in. And we've seen this with other companies, you know, most notably, perhaps recently with all of the delivery apps uh, that, that are now delivering food to all of us. Um, none of those businesses, all of those businesses have grown because SoftBank and, and many others have, have funded uh, these sort of subsidized services um, that, that have allowed the companies to, to charge less than you normally would to expand in ways that, that normal, you know, MBAs approved uh, business sense uh, wouldn't allow. And so I think Masa had this had this sort of belief that um, that that was a, a path towards success for WeWork, and and the other side of it is he's not a real estate guy. Um, you know, he he didn't understand the sort of uh, realities of the real estate business, and and in in whatever sense that he did, he chose to believe that that Adam uh, could find a way to to um, sort of uh, to warp them. There's also the amount of money that went into. Adam's lifestyle. Talk about that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a Adam, for all of his talk about making the world a better place, was was certainly someone who who liked, you know, uh, the finer things in life for for him and his family. Uh, we work at at one point bought a sixty million dollar private jet that was more or less for for Adam's private use. Um, the Newmans uh, owned uh, seven or eight homes. 
um, around the world. They had two homes in the Hamptons, uh, a $20 million home uh, outside of San Francisco in Marin County. Um, he lived a lavish lifestyle. And, and you know, on the one hand, um, you know, we no one wants to totally begrudge someone who is, is successful um, uh, living the life that, that they want to lead. But but it became a bit hypocritical, um, to be frank, uh, with with Adam living his life in one way and, and talking about things in, in quite another way and and treating his employees in, in quite another way. So um, certainly he was he was someone who, who cashed out more money uh, than many other startup founders uh, typically would at, at, at the sort of place that that his company was at. And, and I think, again, as as the company was heading towards its IPO and, and suddenly Adam Newman and his wife were, were a figure of interest to to the public who was considering investing in his money. Uh, the fact that that he and his wife had had one hundred million dollars worth of mortgages on on homes. Uh, was suddenly a, a little bit uh, eyebrow-raising. Was there anybody that told him or that was able to speak truth to power at the point just before the IPO as all of this was coming to a head? At various points in, in sort of the WeWork trajectory, people, you know, people would push back on Adam and, and sometimes successfully and, and more often not. And And I think the trouble with it was over the years and then almost especially leading up to the IPO, no one was was incentivized to do so. Um, At at every stage along the way, uh, Adam's bets had paid off. The WeWork's valuation kept growing. The company kept growing. It kept bringing in more and more money. And so even if you were sort of skeptical, if you were an investor or an executive, you were hesitant to speak up because it kept working. The other side of it is, is of course, that, that all of those people wanted WeWork to be successful because if the IPO had been successful, uh, they would all be uh, lavishly rich um, a, a, as a result. So I think as much as there, there were people trying to push back, and, and they did so, there was also, uh, I think, an overriding sense of, well, if we can just get this out into the world, into the public markets, um, Adam will have to sort of temper his his craziness, and I'll get a big payout, and maybe I can move on. And I, I, I do think that was a, a a sort of driving ethos for for a lot of people, and and uh, that that certainly has changed given given the results of the failed IPO. The other thing that seemed to be driving the crash faster at the end is exactly what you were talking about, all the people that realized they might not get rich as a result of an IPO, the anger that it generated or the fear that it generated, and the way in which people almost started turning on each other. Yeah, I think there was there was a lot of infighting at, at the end. I, I, I don't know how much of that sort of led to, to the IPO collapse, although there's certainly a lot of recriminations being thrown before between the various parties and banks and investors who were all a part of, of the IPO. And, and I think some of, some of that battle is, was kind of normal for these kinds of things. And, and some of it in this case was, was much more problematic. And I think the thing that changed, and, and certainly for me as I was working on this book, is that getting people to talk about Adam and, and the company before the IPO was extremely difficult. Everyone was, was nervous for one reason or another. But once the IPO had failed and, and no one was, was going to get their big payday, and once Adam was pushed out of the company and he was no longer kind of this larger-than-life figure that, that people were, were afraid of, 
suddenly they were much more willing to to sort of speak the truth about about what they had had been feeling along the way and and certainly um if if not exactly incentivized uh more willing to to express some of their their resentments um, after the fact. In so many ways, it's such an American story. It's such a Gadsby-esque mm-hmm. kind of story. Yeah, you know, uh, Adam. Adam, in in many ways, is the American story. He was he was an immigrant to the United States. Um, he he came to New York uh, looking to get rich. Uh, in many ways, he he did. In many ways, he he was successful. He he is wealthier than he he ever could have imagined, even even with the the failure of of his company. And now the the question is, uh, what will be his second act? Um, and and I, I I for one certainly believe that there will be one. He is he is still young. He's forty one years old. He is charismatic. He is uh, humbled, perhaps a little bit, but he is still confident. And I do think he's the kind of person that that's uh, going to get a, a a second chance uh, eventually. And finally, how might it have changed the whole VC business? How has this this disaster? How has it changed any attitudes in, in in the venture capital world? I'd like to think that it has changed a lot, but I think the unfortunate answer is that I, I don't know that it has. And and you know we're we're looking ahead at, at kind of a few things happening later this month. Both Airbnb and DoorDash are are expected to to go public um, at at pretty significant valuations. Um, you know the the WeWork story. Many VCs and and many people in Silicon Valley will sort of say, oh, we were, you know, we knew WeWork was never a tech company. So, you know, in 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 one way they like to embrace it on the way up, and then on the way down they've they've kind of dismissed it. So, you know, I think for better or worse, um, the VC world is still going to be a place that that is um, that that takes bets on on people like Adam Newman. Um, and, and wants to build these giant companies. Uh, if anything, I hope there is a, a sense that, you know, growth at all costs is is not only um, uh, maybe not the best thing, but in some ways can be an actively bad thing for your company. And, and that some amount of, of humility and moderation uh, can actually be crucial to, to sort of building some of these big companies. But but overall, I think for better or worse, the, the VC world is still going to be placing bets like this uh, well into the future. And how does Masa view Adam Newman today and the wreckage of WeWork? Masa has, um, you know, recognized his mistake. He has, he has um, at least said publicly that he um, placed too much faith in Adam, um, that he placed too much belief in WeWork. Um, frankly, I think in, in some ways, a lot of his comments are a bit of a cop-out. He's, he is trying to blame Adam uh, in many ways, uh, but, but Masa was the one who, who enabled that, uh, who, who enabled Adam to, to think bigger and bolder. So, you know, I, I, I do wonder what lessons he has learned and, and if the, the, at whatever moment, the next Adam Newman walks into his office looking for money, if, if he's really going to, going to say no, or if he's just going to take another chance and, and hope for the best. Reeves Weideman, his book is Billion Dollar Loser. The Epic Rise and Spectacular Fall of Adam Newman and WeWork. Reeves, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thanks for the conversation. Thank you.